This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. Today we're going to take a very small dip into the vast sea of what has been called the golden age of Russian literature. It's going to be an unusual episode today because we're going to try to tackle a different genre. We've done novels and plays, nonfiction memoirs, a political document and poetry. But today, we're going to look at our very first short story. So, Christy, what are we getting into? Yes, stories in general are comprised of certain elements. And for the most part, just like novels, except for the obvious, short stories are the same. They're just shorter. Shorter. (laughs) Yeah. They have character settings. They develop plots. They use symbols. They have point of view. They reveal attitude. Uh, But like novels... All of these independent elements are going to contribute to leading the reader to a specific theme or a universal truth, insight on life, perspective, however you want to define it, which is the point of the story. So stories are not just recounting of events. They have an idea behind them. Short stories are unique in that they have to be extremely concise and focused It's not just a shorter sequence of events. Lots of times they'll involve an epiphany, some moment of insight, a discovery, a revelation of something that made a person's life change. They're usually only set in one place and the plots are not going to be complex. And sometimes the plots are not even important to the story at all. In Chekhov's case, for the majority of his stories, he really focuses a large part of his work on characters. He uses precision of detail, dialogues, inner monologues, sometimes even reversals, and that's when the result of an action is the direct opposite of a character's intentions, to say something, make an observation, or pose a question about who a person is and vicariously 
Who are we as people? You will see, because it's exemplified in every short story in this one too, that he's just not going to say the same old cliched fairy tale type of thing that lots of people were saying in lots of kinds of stories. In fact, I'm not really sure what he's trying to say about people at all. Well, that's interesting because uh, there's, I feel like, a very definite theme to the Russian golden age of literature. And when you read the, the heavyweights in Russian literature from this time period, there's a couple of trends that seem to occur. Number one of which is these Russian writers write, they, well, let me say this, they don't write about the heroic. Many, uh, many stories are about heroically overcoming odds or whatever. Since the earliest literature, the Russians are the anti-heroes. They love to write uh, about emotions. They love to write about internal processes. And they love to write about futile behavior, which I find interesting. So sometimes they're less about storylines and they're a lot more about introspection and looking into the human psyche. And, you know, they took a lot of criticism from the literary critics of the day who didn't like this perspective of such so much internal dialogue documenting. So um, these writers were detailing human behavior as serfdom was dying out in Russia and Russia was becoming increasingly focused on becoming westernized. So they're in the middle of a huge culture transition when they're writing during this age. Well, the 19th century is definitely the golden age of Russian literature. And there's not very many people, I think even today, who haven't heard of Leo Tolstoy's masterpiece, War and Peace. But you never see the Russian writers being compared to the adventure stories like the Odyssey or the wit and satire of Mark Twain at all. Yeah, that is interesting, too. Yeah, not real heavy on wit and satire. <laughs> but no. um, So, like we mentioned, they were criticized for this direction in the writing. And mostly they were criticized because it was heavily philosophic. And it was heavily philosophic on the meaning of life. And that was the contribution and a new thing they were uh, using in their writing during that time period. They were actually kind of borderline nihilistic sometimes on the futility of man. And they will, as a group of writers, heavily influence every renowned writer up to this day. Any writer who has uh, learned to develop a character will give some kind of credit to the Russian writers of the Golden Age. Well, Matthew Arnold, the poet who wrote Dover Beach, which was the first poem we ever analyzed on this podcast, famously said that a work by Tolstoy is not a piece of art, but a piece of life. And of course, Tolstoy is the most famous Russian writer. Then after him, you have Dostoevsky. Uh, of course, they're famous for writing big books that scare everyone. I'd love to one day... Uh, analyze Anna Karenina for the podcast because that might be one of my favorites. But Anton Chekhov is different because he's manageable. Uh, yes, we'd have to do <laughs> 10 episodes to cover Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. Yeah. The first thing I ever heard that he wrote was this play called uh, The Cherry Orchard, and lots of people uh, are know that. And his he has some plays that are quite famous. But what he is really good at and what he perfected and competitive, competitively one of the best in the entire world is writing short stories. And he wrote more than any human being on planet Earth that we know of. He wrote, well, at least of the famous ones. He literally published more than 400. There is no equal in terms of 
quantity. He wrote about everything. Life in big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg and small towns and peasant villages from every part of Russia, from the south all the way to Siberia. He wrote about aristocrats, industrialists, small town merchants, writers, painters, religious people, secular people, servants, bad people, good people, crazy people, all of it. Someone counted, not me, but I read that there are over 8,000 different types of characters in these stories. He wrote, of course, about a huge number of themes, but a lot of it really comes down to the freedom of the individual and what people do with their choices. He hated inauthenticity and really tried to look for what people were actually like And the circumstances that they created, the circumstances that created them, that defeated them. And in some sense, I find his work quite modern because he seeks to be non-judgmental. There is no moralizing really out of Chekhov. He's not hinting that you should be a certain way, that if one particular viewpoint is the right, uh, correct viewpoint to have, he's basically just saying, This is what people are. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) Do with them what you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting because he's uh, emerging at the time of several forces. I mean, during this time period, you have Germans developing the field of sociology. And later on, you're going to have Sigmund Freud developing the field of psychology. So he's in the milieu of all this introspective, looking inward, sorting out your motivations and emotions type of uh, environment was going on during that time period. So, but let's just drop him into history, okay? He was born on January 29th, 1860, and died in 1904. Uh, In terms of what was happening in the United States, that means he was born basically at the beginning of the Civil War, and he's going to die shortly after the turn of the century. But in American terms, this is going to include... Reconstruction and industrialization and the Gilded Age and reform movements that will start to begin about this time period. So, uh, but life in Russia was very far away and very different from all the things that were going on in the United States. His life was sadly cut short, and of course, he missed most of the turmoil that would plague Russia, starting with the Russian Revolution just a few years after his death. Uh, But getting back to his early years and something we uh, in the West can in no way understand except through the African-American slave experience is that he did not come from a legacy of freedom. His father actually had to purchase his own freedom from serfdom, which is something that we in the United States can't imagine. We don't have any familiarity with that. Well, we had our own scourge of human bondage, but it's hard for us to imagine how human uh, bondage has plagued every corner of this globe. Uh, we certainly don't understand the way the Russians understood it. Almost everyone was a slave or they were one generation removed. The Romanov dynasty ruled the Russian Empire from 1613 to 1917, and 80% of the people were poor. They were illiterate serfs, and Tsar Alexander II, who ruled Russia during Chekhov's lifetime, tried to make more uh, Russia more open and more Western, he relaxed censorship, which, of course, affected the production of the arts during this time. But in 1861, he freed the serfs and established a parliament he called the Duma. And so now they get their first taste of representative government. 
The freedom he gave the people did not have the exact desired effect because instead of making them happy, it made them more discontent, which is what freedom can do for people. Uh, there were actually at least two attempts on his life, and one time the dissenters actually put dynamite in the dining room in the palace. In 1881, a terrorist group called People's Will killed him by throwing a bomb at his carriage. I guess it it's not all that surprising that Alexander III decided enough with freedom, and he ended the Duma experiment. Uh, eventually, all of this led to the events we described in Episode 1, and on the Russian Revolution. But all of this would have been very impactful to Chekhov and everyone coming out of this very primitive form of existence to a first generation of free educated people, a first generation of people with a shot at improving their lives. He's in the middle of that. Chekhov's family made a great effort to educate Chekhov, and eventually he would graduate from medical school, but they themselves were very poor. Chekhov's father never had a job that could support his family. And by the time Chekhov was in college, he was the de facto head of the family because he financially supported his family who had all moved from the interior to Moscow. Well, it's interesting that the reason he started writing at all was because he could write these little publications uh, and sell them for money like at these little magazine shops when he was in school in order to support his family. So the the financial incentive was really his motivation to become a writer at all. It's something, obviously, that came fairly easy to him. In 1883 alone, he published over 100 items. Mm, busy. Yes, and a lot of them were funny because that's the kind of stuff people wanted to buy. And they were written for sale, and that's what he did. The unintended consequence of all that money grabbing, though, was he got really, really good at his craft at writing and especially writing short things. Well, there you go. Before we get into the stories, and I know we need to, I do think it's interesting to close out with this little brief intro by saying that Anton Chekhov's brief life was spent mostly with his parents and his brother and sister. He married only when he was dying. He was a practicing doctor, uh, but his heart must have been big because he almost never charged for his medical services. In fact, it's said he spent as much time treating the sick, his relatives, and the peasantry as he did writing. He did achieve fame in Russia as a writer and enough success to allow him to buy a farm and care for his aging parents. His fame in the West, however, only came years later, and that was mostly after World War I when his stories were published in the West. So... Christy, this is the first set of short stories we've ever done, so tell us what we're looking at or looking for. Okay. Before we get into the analysis of these stories, I do want to mention that he wrote in Russian. Now, I know that seems obvious uh, because he's Russian, but sometimes there are different translations, and sometimes the titles are even different. Like the same story could have different English titles depending on where you're looking. We're going to look at one story. I'm not sure that's any better. It's not even his most famous, but it's one that's in uh, a lot of publications, and it's called The Bet. So uh, what I – and I don't know if this is the exact best way to analyze the short story, so we're going to try it. But what I want us to do is – we're going to read it, and as we go, we're going to take a look at it part by part, and then when we get to the end, we'll kind of look at it as a whole. 
If you want to listen to it straight through, there are several YouTube videos that do just that. And on a website, we'll give you a link just for convenience sake. So you can go listen to the um, cultured, Unedited. edited, <laughs> properly done version. Okay, so how do we start? Well, this story will start like every other story with the exposition. Now, if you remember Freytag's Pyramid or Triangle, we talked about it in the Lord of the Flies episodes. If you heard, heard, read those or listened to those um, Freytag created this framework of analyzing stories in 1863 because he was trying to illustrate the plots of tragedies. But since then, we've applied this model to every single story ever written. And every every person who takes any literature class uh, will know it. So what we learn is the exposition of the story is what we call that part of the story that exposes, that gets it out there before the inciting incident or the first event the hook that's going to kind of set the story in motion. So this story is so short and it's so not plot centered. Unusually, almost half of the story is just exposition. So just setting it up. What actually happens is quite small and the exposition Generally speaking, we meet characters, we find a setting, we see the point of view and we're going to set the mood. Our story is the same way we're going to meet our settings we're going to see we're going to meet our characters we're going to see our setting and we're going to see that the point of view is in the third person but it's a limited omniscient now what does that mean there's a narrator so it's a third person it's not a first person it's not somebody telling their own story it's a narrator but it's not an omniscient perspective we're not god looking into everyone's minds we're looking at it really from one side and so the side of the story that we're going to look at it is the banker side, even though he's not telling it, telling the story, we get to see inside his mind, but we don't get to see inside anybody else's mind. And the point of view that we're going to have is really the point of view that he is going to have. So it's going to start off uh, with kind of this complex flashback, and then we're going to get into some inner monologue. So why don't you start reading it for us? Okay. And I'll interrupt you from time to time. Okay. It was a dark autumn night. The old banker was walking up and down his study and remembering how 15 years before he had given a party one autumn evening. There had been many clever men there and there had been interesting conversations. Among other things, they had talked of capital punishment. The majority of the guests, among whom were many journalists and intellectual men, disapproved of the death penalty. They considered that form of punishment out of date, immoral, and unsuitable for Christian states. In the opinion of some of them, the death penalty ought to be replaced everywhere by imprisonment for life. Okay, stop. So immediately we're going to see dark autumn night. There's our mood, kind of mm. dark setting. And we're good. we don't know exactly what time it is, but we know that we're inside some old banker's house, and it's 15 years removed from something that he is going back and visiting in his mind. And the topic, of course, a political one, capital punishment. Indeed. Yeah, that's a nice party conversation. <laughs> well, it is going to be kind of um, testy here. Keep going. Okay. I don't agree with you, said their host, the banker. I've not tried either the death penalty or imprisonment for life. But if one may judge a priori, the death penalty is more moral and more humane than imprisonment for life. Capital punishment kills a man at once, but lifelong imprisonment kills him slowly. Which executioner is the more humane? 
He who kills you in a few minutes or he who drags the life out of you in the course of many years. Now we're being presented with an existential double bind here. (laughs) Yes, and it's something that, you know, we all have to think about. It's not a perfect world and we do have problems and how do you go about fixing them? I would like to say this too. We're going to debate the death penalty but nobody will ever discuss in Chekhov's works why we have laws in the first place. Oh, you're getting deep. Okay. Both are equally immoral, observed one of the guests, for they both have the same object, to take away life. The state is not God. It is not the right to take away what it cannot restore when it wants to. Among the guests was a young lawyer, a young man of five and twenty, When he was asked his opinion, he said, The death sentence and the life sentence are equally immoral. But if I had to choose between the death penalty and imprisonment for life, I would certainly choose the second. To live anyhow is better than not at all. And of course, every 25-year-old would think that. (laughs) So a lively discussion arose. The banker, who was younger and more nervous in those days, was suddenly carried away by excitement. He struck the table with his fist and shouted at the young man, It's not true. I'll bet you two million you wouldn't stay in solitary confinement for five years. If you mean that in earnest, said the young man, I'll take that bet. But I would stay not five, but 15 years. Okay, can we take a moment to comment on the the ridiculousness of offering to triple the, the wager <laughs> in, well, against yourself? Well, let's just, I think you're supposed to. You're supposed to go, what? And what we have here is what we call indirect characterization. And that's intentional. So what he's doing is he's telling us who these people are, but this is very Chekhov. He doesn't give you any commentary like, this guy's kind of rash. He allows you to come to your own conclusion and you're going to say, what? And so you see a nervous guy and they're a jittery guy and they're argumentative. They're highly intelligent. These are all things that we're learning indirectly. But when you get to that point, you're right. You, you just want to say, wait a minute, I got to take a minute. This is odd. And Chekhov puts them in a philosophically competitive state. And I want to say this about philosophy. Philosophy is really the mathematics of ideas, which is why you can come to so many different conclusions. And... Dudes tend to be competitive, I guess. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> they will compete over anything. All right. So uh, keep going. 15. Done, cried the banker. Gentlemen, I stake two million. Agreed. You stake your millions and I stake my freedom, said the young man. And this wild, senseless bet was carried out. The banker, spoilt and frivolous with millions beyond his reckoning, was delighted at the bet. At supper, he made fun of the young man and said, Think better of it, young man, while there is still time. To me, two million is a trifle, but you are losing three or four of the best years of your life. I say three or four because you won't stay longer. Don't forget either, you unhappy man, that voluntary confinement is a great deal harder to bear than compulsory. The thought that you have the right to step out in liberty at any moment will poison your whole experience in prison. I'm sorry for you. And I find, again, this is an interesting point of uh, indirect characterization. What is it saying about an older man who clearly is willing to exploit this young man who he finds uh, rash and, I guess, uh, senseless and reckless, and he's going to let him throw away three or four years? To me, it's cold. This guy's cold. Well, it is. It is. I find it interesting that the banker has not incentivized himself what does he get if he wins the bet? I know. That's what I mean. He He's getting some sort of 
satisfaction of of seeing this guy throw away his life. I don't know what it says, but to me, I, I find it very curious and and unexplainable in some sense. Of course, two million dollars. I'm sure in eighteen or rubles in eighteen sixty or eighty, whenever this is, uh, we is quite a lot of money in today's terms, millions, I'm sure. Well, and inadvertently, the wager is really about how much dollar figure value can you put on life. Exactly. Right. And now the banker, walking to and fro, remembered all this and asked himself, what was the object of that bet? What is the good of that man's losing 15 years of his life and my throwing away two million? Can it prove that the death penalty is better or worse than imprisonment for life? No, no. It was all nonsensical and meaningless. On my part, it was the caprice of a pampered man and on his part, simple greed for money. And of course, these are good thoughts to have, but now he's thinking them 15 years later. This is the first time this occurred to you. Then he remembered what followed that evening. It was decided that the young man should spend the years of his captivity under the strictest supervision in one of the lodges in the banker's garden. It was agreed that for 15 years he should not be free to cross the threshold of the lodge, to see human beings, to hear the human voice, or to receive letters and newspapers. He was allowed to have a musical instrument and books and was allowed to write letters and to drink wine and to smoke. By the terms of the agreement, the only relations he could have with the outer world were by a little window made purposefully for that object. He might have anything he wanted, books, music, wine, and so on, in any quantity he desired. By writing an order, he could receive them only through the window. The agreement provided for every detail and every trifle that would make his imprisonment strictly solitary and bound the young man to stay there exactly 15 years, beginning from 12 o'clock of November 14, 1870, and ending at 12 o'clock November 14, 1885. The slightest attempt on his part to break the conditions, if only two minutes before the end, released the banker from the obligation to pay him two million. And of course, now we see the exact setting. And remember, setting is not just location, it's time. Because you can have a setting that's set in a place, if it's set 200 years later, that's not the same setting. So we have the time, 1870 to 1885, which is now 1885 because we're finishing the time, and we know where we're at. We're in the shed in the back of the house of this banker dude's house. What do you think of the terms of that uh, bet, Gary? Clearly, he gets all the food. He can be drunk. He can smoke. He can read whatever he wants. He can play an instrument. Just no humanity. <laughs> well, actually, one of the, the most absolute cruel forms of punishment psychologically is isolation. That's what he has. That's, that's all he has. Which, in some respects, would be considered even more cruel than the death penalty. But he gets everything else. And so they're really isolating one factor of human existence. Right. And Chekhov is constantly putting us in the game of situational ethics. How would your ethics change when you're presented with certain circumstances? Well, want to read about what he did for the 15 years? Yes. (laughs) can imagine. For the first year of his confinement, as far as one could judge from his brief notes, the prisoner suffered severely from loneliness and depression. The sounds of the piano could be heard continually day and night from his lodge. He refused wine and tobacco. Wine, he wrote, excites the desires, and desires are the worst foes of the prisoner. 
And besides, nothing could be more dreary than drinking good wine and seeing no one. And tobacco spoilt the air of his room. In the first year, the books he sent for were principally of a like character. Novels with a complicated love plot, sensational and fantastic stories, and so on. In the second year, the piano was silent in the lodge, and the prisoner asked only for the classics. In the fifth year, music was audible again, and the prisoner asked for wine. Those who watched him through the window said that all that year he spent doing nothing but eating and drinking and lying on his bed, frequently yawning and angrily talking to himself. He did not read books. Sometimes at night he would sit down to write. He would spend hours writing and in the morning tear up all that he had written. More than once he could be heard crying. In the second half of the sixth year, the prisoner began zealously studying languages, philosophy, and history. He threw himself eagerly into these studies, so much so that the banker had enough to do to get him the books he ordered. In the course of four years, some 600 volumes were produced at his request. It was during this period that the banker received the following letter from his prisoner. My dear jailer, I write you these lines in six languages. Show them to people who know the languages. Let them read them. If they find not one mistake, I implore you to fire a shot in the garden. That shot will show me that my efforts have not been thrown away. The geniuses of all the ages and of all lands speak different languages, but the same flame burns in them all. Oh, if you only knew what unearthly happiness my soul feels now from being able to understand them. The prisoner's desire was fulfilled. The banker ordered two shots to be fired in the garden. Then after the tenth year, the prisoner sat immovably at the table and read nothing but the gospel. It seemed strange to the banker that a man who in four years had mastered 600 learned volumes should waste nearly a year over one thin book easy of comprehension. Theology and histories of religion follow the Gospels. I do want to point out that the Gospels, that's uh, a Christian text. That's the New Testament uh, of the Christian Bible. So uh, he got into religion after he had got into languages and all these other things. Before we, well, finish what he did the last two years. I want to hear your thoughts on how you think he progressed. In the last two years of his confinement, the prisoner read an immense quantity of books quite indiscriminately. At one time, he was busy with the natural sciences. He would ask for Byron or Shakespeare. There were notes in which he demanded at the same time books on chemistry and a manual of medicine and a novel and some treatise on philosophy or theology. His reading suggested a man swimming in the sea among the wreckage of his ship and trying to save his life by greedily clutching first at one spar and then another. And, of course, that's kind of an interesting... uh analogy that he's trying to make there but if you look at the progression is this kind of a natural progression of life you see the first year he's kind of silly light love then he's going to go on to depression then he's going to go on to intellectual conquests and then he he writes that little letter that he seems to have found some sort of uh i don't know um zen moment i guess having finding the flame that burns in all the languages and all the people. And then he gets to the Gospels. He changes tunes to religion. And then he goes into a bunch of science stuff. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Chekhov is just showing the the metamorphosis right here. 
if somebody was really experiencing this, it might not be in this order. Do you think these are like phases of life? or? I think they're interests. And I think if you were a prisoner that was in solitary confinement, your mind has a lot of work it has to do to entertain itself and keep it going. So it's going everywhere. So the lack of stimulation is what's so painful about uh, isolation like this. And so he, it, by the end of the, uh, the last two years, he's reaching out for any kind of information to keep his mind going. Well, all of this is exposition. So nothing has happened in this story. All we have is the banker. We're in his mind, and he's reviewing everything that's happened up to this point. So now we're going to have our inciting incident or our narrative hook. In other words, the first piece of action is going to set off the conflict. And a conflict is when the protagonist and the antagonist are going to meet, which we don't even know who that is yet. The old banker remembered all this and thought, tomorrow at 12 o'clock he will regain his freedom. By our agreement, I ought to pay him two million If I do pay him, it is all over with me. I shall be utterly ruined. Fifteen years before, his millions had been beyond his reckoning. Now he was afraid to ask himself which were greater, his debts or his assets. Desperate gambling on the stock exchange, wild speculation, and the excitability which he could not get over even in advancing years had by degrees led to the decline of his fortune and the proud, fearless, self-confident millionaire had become a banker of middling rank, trembling at every rise and fall in his investments. Cursed bet, muttered the old man, clutching his head in despair. Why didn't the man die? He is only 40 now. He will take my last penny from me. He will marry, will enjoy life, will gamble on the exchange, while I shall look at him with envy like a beggar and hear from him every day the same sentence. I am indebted to you for the happiness of my life. Let me help you. No, it is too much. The one means of being saved from bankruptcy and disgrace is the death of that man. Whoa. So now we know the conflict. It's not an external conflict at all. This isn't banker versus lawyer. This isn't man versus man. It's not even man versus the environment. It's not even the lawyer versus the solitary confinement. This story is the banker versus the banker. Does he have it in him to kill a man? Which is so interesting that he is now considering the idea of murder when the whole bet began on the whole immorality of murder. Exactly right. Irony. (laughs) Yes. It struck three o'clock. The banker listened. Everyone was asleep in the house and nothing could be heard outside but the rustling of the chilled trees. Trying to make no noise, he took from a fireproof safe the key of the door, which had not been opened for 15 years, put on his overcoat, and went out of the house. It was dark and cold in the garden. Rain was falling. A damp, cutting wind was racing about the garden, howling and giving the trees no rest. The banker strained his eyes, but could see neither the earth, nor the white statues, nor the lodge, nor the trees. Going to the spot where the lodge stood, he twice called the watchman. No answer followed. Evidently, the watchman had sought shelter from the weather and was now asleep somewhere, either in the kitchen or in the greenhouse. If I had the pluck to carry out my intention, thought the old man, suspicion would fall first upon the watchman. And there we have the complications. So he's going in there and he realizes, huh, I might could get away with it. There's no guard. 
He felt in the darkness for his steps and the door and went into the entry of the lodge. Then he groped his way into a little passage and lighted a match. There was not a soul there. There was a bedstead with no bedding on it, and in the corner there was a dark cast-iron stove. The seals on the door leading to the prisoner's rooms were intact. When the match went out, the old man, trembling with emotion, peeped through the little window. A candle was burning dimly in the prisoner's room. He was sitting at the table. Nothing could be seen but his back, the hair on his head, and his hands. Open books were lying on the table, on the two easy chairs, and on the carpet near the table. Five minutes passed, and a prisoner did not stir once. Fifteen years' imprisonment had taught him to sit still. The banker tapped at the window with his finger, and the prisoner made no movement whatever in response. Then the banker cautiously broke the seals off the door and put the key in the keyhole. The rusty lock gave a grating sound, and the door creaked. The banker expected to hear at once footsteps and a cry of astonishment. But three minutes passed, and it was as quiet as ever in the room. He made up his mind to go in. At the table, a man, unlike ordinary people, was sitting motionless. He was a skeleton with the skin drawn tight over his bones, with long curls like a woman's and a shaggy beard. His face was yellow with an earthy tint in it. His cheeks were hollow, his back long and narrow, and the hand on which his shaggy head was propped was so thin and delicate that it was dreadful to look at. His hair was already streaked with silver, and seeing his emaciated, age-looking face, no one would have believed that he was only forty. He was asleep. In front of his bowed head there lay on the table a sheet of paper on which there was something written in fine handwriting." Poor creature, thought the banker, he is asleep and most likely dreaming of the millions, and I have only to take this half-dead man, throw him on the bed, stifle him a little with a pillow, and the most conscientious expert would find no sign of a violent death. But let us first read what he has written here. All right, I find that paragraph interesting because the way I understand it, let us, he's talking in the first person plural, first read what he has written here. First read, what do you mean? He's decided to kill him. Right. But he's distracted. <laughs> he's distracted. He looks how weak. He, no one's going to tell. There's nobody watching. He's pillow. The pillow makes it easy. But before I do, I have this bit of curiosity. Let me see what he says. So the banker took the page from the table and read as follows. Tomorrow at 12 o'clock, I regain my freedom and the right to associate with other men. But before I leave this room and see the sunshine, I think it necessary to say a few words to you. With a clear conscience, I tell you, as before God who beholds me, that I despise freedom and life and health and all that in your books is called the good things of the world. For 15 years, I have been intently studying earthly life. It is true I have not seen the earth or men, but in your books I have drunk fragrant wine, I have sung songs, I have hunted stags and wild boars in the forest, I have loved women, beauties as ethereal as clouds, created by the magic of your poets and geniuses, have visited me at night and have whispered in my ears wonderful tales that have set my brain in a whirl. In your books I have climbed to the 
peaks of Elburz and Mount Blanc, and from there I have seen the sunrise and have watched it at the evening flood the sky, the ocean, and the mountaintops with the gold and crimson. I have watched from there the lightning flashing over my head and cleaving the storm clouds. I have seen green forests, fields, rivers, lakes, towns. I have heard the singing of the sirens and the strains of the shepherd's pipes. I have touched the wings of comely devils who flew down to converse with me of God. In your books, I have flung myself into the bottomless pit, performed miracles, slain, burned towns, preached new religions, conquered whole kingdoms. Your books have given me wisdom. All that the unresting thought of man has created in the ages is compressed into a small compass in my brain. I know that I am wiser than all of you, and I despise your books. I despise wisdom and the blessings of this world. It is all worthless, fleeting, illusory, and deceptive, like a mirage. You may be proud, wise, and fine, but death will wipe you off the face of the earth as though you were no more than mice burying under the floor. And your posterity, your history, your immortal geniuses will burn or freeze together with the earthly globe. You have lost your reason and taken the wrong path. You have taken lies for truth and hideousness for beauty. You would marvel if, owing to strange events of some sort, frogs and lizards suddenly grew on apple and orange trees instead of fruit, or if roses began to smell like a sweating horse. So I marvel at you, who exchange heaven for earth. I don't want to understand you. To prove to you in action how I despise all that you live by, I renounce the two million of which I once dreamed as of paradise and which now I despise. To deprive myself of the right to the money, I shall go out from here five minutes before the time fixed and so break the compact. I think some translations may say five hours. I don't know. Okay. When the banker had read this, he laid the page on the table, kissed the strange man on the head, and went out of the lodge weeping. At no other time, even when he had lost heavily on the stock exchange, had he felt so great a contempt for himself. When he got home, he lay on his bed, but his tears and emotions kept him for hours from sleeping. The next morning, the watchmen ran in with pale faces and told him they had seen the man who lived in the lodge climb out of the window into the garden, go to the gate, and disappear. The banker went at once with the servants to the lodge and made sure of the flight of his prisoner. To avoid arousing unnecessary talk, he took from the table the writing in which the millions were renounced and, when he got home, locked it up in the fireproof safe. The end. (laughs) (laughs) So just from an analytical point of view, you know, the climax is when he reads the letter and decides not to kill him. Uh, And then the rest is what happens after, which is nothing. The guy goes home and he cries and he cries because he has contempt for himself. And then the young man, who's not young anymore, runs away. What are we supposed to gather from this? What's he saying about life or people, really? Well, it's interesting. Though, one of the lines that stands out is where the young man says, So I marvel at you who exchange heaven for earth. In his isolation, he had become part of heaven, or he, had, he feels like he had seen into heaven, or he had become part of a larger consciousness in his isolation, so much so that he despised the earth and the money that the banker clung to. And yet he was willing to fulfill the whole 15 years to say, beat you. And he wanted to win. This was a game. And all that learning, all that so-called philosophy didn't 
I don't see him changing. He's just as rash at the end as he was at the beginning. He didn't reduce his competitiveness any, did he? You would think 15 years alone would make you less competitive. <laughs> I mean, he has all, I mean, he talks and he talks and he talks and he says all these theological and philosophical things, but is it true? Is it, I know he thinks it's true. But is Chekhov saying that it is or isn't? I don't know. This He well, doesn't make a comment. He just makes you infer. And that's does. Chekhov's craziness. He lets you fill in the blanks. He is leaving it open-ended. After all, like we said earlier, this is a book on situational ethics. And it's it's almost like what we call the thematic apperception test. A thematic apperception test is when we show you a picture, and it's an innocuous picture of people having a conversation and you're asked to interpret what's going on. As you interpret what's in the picture, you're really revealing your own biases and your inner processes. And so Chekhov is doing the same thing. He's letting you reveal your biases about the situation you were placed in when you read the book. Well, and I do think the more interesting character, I don't think the liar is the main character. I, I think the banker is. And the banker it has contempt. He realizes he's a horrible person and that's all he is. I mean, that's, and he cries about it. There's nothing that he does to change it. In fact, he makes sure that he people, covers up. <laughs> yes, he keeps the letter and locks it up. And almost he assumes this identity and makes peace with it maybe at the end. And, and maybe people are like that. I guess that's what Chekhov is observing. And it's a dark way of looking at the world. That's for sure. Neither one of these guys are good. It is cynical in that regard. You know, <laughs> Chekhov would have let some people go through a resolution um, of their angst about who they are. Uh, that does not happen in this story. Well, the unanswered question that I don't want to talk about, but I think we should ask, is to what degree is Chekhov right? Is this who we are? I think that's an excellent discussion to be had to people who are listening. <laughs> All right. Are we going to call it? Let's wrap it up. Um, thanks for being with us today in our new special short story supplement edition. Uh, tell your friends uh, to pick us up and listen to us on their podcast. We always enjoy new friends. Join us and check us out on our webpage at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We'd like to keep up with you and find out what's going on. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.